Welcome to the Fertility Journeys podcast. Here's Dr. Shala Salem. Welcome, Lily. There was actually a very interesting study, I believe it was out of Singapore, that followed 750 women who were actively trying to conceive, and they found that higher blood sugar levels were associated with a greater risk of menstrual cycle irregularities, so period problems, um, and irregular cycles, and also lower chances of getting pregnant in any given menstrual cycle. And this was shown even in women who had blood sugar levels in the so-called higher end of the normal range. This means you don't need to be having pre-diabetic blood sugar levels to have problems. High blood sugar is really an emergency to your body and it creates a lot of inflammation. And then your body has to work really hard to put out that inflammatory fire. I'm talking colloquially here, but this does affect your hormone balance, your egg quality. It affects rates of fertilization. It can affect implantation. It can affect the development of the placenta. A lot of these very subtle blood sugar issues women have get worse over the course of pregnancy too. I know the fertility journey is not easy. Many suffer in silence, walking that line between hope and devastation. More often than we know, the path to building a family is met with challenges. I'm Dr. Shala Salem, and for over a decade, I have been helping people just like you on their fertility journey. As a physician and a PCOS warrior who's gone through my own fertility struggles, I am passionate about helping to support your mental and physical well-being, foster your resilience, and help you maintain your sense of self on this difficult journey. I created this podcast to support you. Each week, you can learn from our expert guests about proven holistic and integrative methods to nurture your mind, body, and spirit. And hear women share their own stories to remind you that you are not alone. Welcome to Fertility Journeys. Fertility fad, fact, or fiction. Here's the latest from Dr. Shala. Do you think you're getting adequate sleep? I ask a lot of my patients this question because I think so many of us these days are not. And we really bypass sleep as an important part of health. We might be worried about what we're eating or whether we're exercising enough. Are we stressing too much? But sleep, if you seem to be able to get by, we kind of just push it to the side. It's almost a badge of honor when you only need six hours of sleep. But the truth is, is that most people are having some level of impairment if they're sleeping less than seven hours. There are some exceptions to that rule, but really think about, are you tired when you wake up in the morning? We really should be feeling refreshed. Do you use caffeine to mask that fatigue? Sleep is something that's vital for our health. Lack of sleep has been linked to heart disease, cancer, obesity, and diabetes. And it's also important if you're trying to conceive because lack of sleep has been shown to impact fertility and our hormones as well. It's even been linked to irregular menstruation and irregular ovulation. Now, if you're somebody who's snoring, you wake up multiple times at night, you're having a lot of difficulty getting to sleep, it takes you a really long time, you're having a difficult time staying asleep, then I really recommend that you see a sleep specialist. I did have a whole episode on sleep, episode eight, with Dr. Meredith Broderick. I really encourage you to check out that episode if you have not already. She goes into a lot of detail about sleep and how it impacts our health as well as fertility. And she really makes the argument if you are a patient with PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome that you should be having a sleep evaluation because of the high percentage of patients with PCOS who deal with sleep apnea. Now, I'm going to give you some tips today on sleep for those who don't have a diagnosed sleep disorder. And this is not going to work for everybody. As I said, if you're somebody that has an issue with sleep, you really need to work with a sleep specialist who can help you go through treatment for your sleep disorder, whether that be sleep apnea or insomnia. I really encourage you doing that. But for the rest of us who now and then may have sleep that's disrupted, we need to look at some of the lifestyle things that we do and see how we can improve our sleep habits. First is, your bed should be used for sleep and sex only. It's really important that your mind and body doesn't associate your bed with work. Oftentimes, we're bringing computer, laptop, tablets, phones into the bed, doing work, scrolling. So it's really important to resist this temptation because your mind now associates your bed with work, and it makes it more difficult for you to fall asleep. 
limit and avoid your caffeine after 12 noon. If you're noticing difficulties with falling asleep, take note of the last time you had caffeine, including your tea, your coffee, energy drinks, and even chocolate. And you may need to stop even earlier than 12 noon. It's estimated that about a quarter of the caffeine is still in your bloodstream up to 12 hours later. Another important thing for sleep is maintaining a consistent sleep schedule and staying on this schedule, whether it's a weekday or whether it's a weekend, because that allows your body to really understand when it's time to wind down and when it's time to wake up, and it supports a more healthful sleep. Limiting screen time. This is such a big one for most of us. Most of us are guilty of using screens, whether it be a phone, tablet, TV, computer, right before bed. Screens emit light that can negatively impact the melatonin secretion. And so I would recommend bare minimum of one hour before bedtime, ideally is probably two hours, especially if you're having difficulties falling asleep. Eating. A lot of us may be eating late at night. You may get home late from work, and then you're ending up eating really late. When you eat late at night, it really can impact how you sleep. I usually recommend stopping eating at least two hours before bedtime as a way to allow your body to adequately digest before you get to sleep. Sometimes you may need to look at specific foods you're eating, whether they be spicy or acidic or fatty, and it may make it more difficult if you're eating those closer to bedtime. And last thing is develop a relaxing evening ritual. That might be evening meditation, yoga, taking a warm bath, journaling, Pairing these type of habits with bed can really set the tone for relaxation for the evening and kind of signal to your body that it's time to wind down. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found these tips helpful, and I hope you enjoy today's interview. One of the most common questions I get from my patients is, what should I eat when I'm trying to conceive? I'm so excited to have my next guest speak with us today. Lily Nichols is going to break down the research for us. Lily is a registered dietitian, certified diabetes educator, researcher, and author with a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition. Her work is known for being research-focused, thorough, and critical of outdated dietary guidelines. She is a co-founder of the Women's Health Nutrition Academy and the author of two books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Lily's best-selling books have helped tens of thousands of mamas and babies and are used in university-level maternal nutrition and midwifery courses and have even influenced prenatal nutrition policy internationally. Welcome, Lily. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I have wanted to have you on for so long because lots of my patients and lots of my listeners want to know what they should be eating during preconception period. And I know that this is a kind of heavily debated topic. Many of the current guidelines are very outdated. And your books really challenged a lot of those accepted guidelines and its research base. You have close to a thousand references in your book. Why did you decide to write Real Food for Pregnancy? Well, it was after a long time working in the prenatal nutrition field. Real Food for Gestational Diabetes was the first one, so I have to explain that to go into what led to the mm-hmm. second book. I spent many years working in the gestational diabetes field from clinical care, working under a perinatologist. I was like the dietitian and diabetes educator for a very busy perinatal practice with a really high percentage of clients who had mm-hmm. gestational diabetes. I also worked at the public policy level with the state of California's diabetes and pregnancy program, and then also helped train many professionals in working with gestational diabetes. So I was able to see how the guidelines were formed, like what's the basis of evidence for them, but then also able to see how they work in real life practice. And what I saw was that the nutrition guidelines were not well matched to properly address gestational diabetes. And I say Mm -hmm. that because at least half of our clients would so-called fail diet therapy. So we were not able to get their blood sugars into the normal range and would have to resort to using insulin and medication. And that just seemed crazy to me. A big reason, of course, was that I had already been eating relatively like moderately low carb for many years and noticed many benefits in my own health, especially resolution of long-term reactive hypoglycemia, like my blood sugar was always going low because I was always eating too many carbs and not enough things to Mm -hmm. help balance out the blood sugar spike and crash. And so it was absolutely transformative to my own life to not 
always have these energy slumps and be starving and always have to like travel with emergency snacks. I mean, it was Mm -hmm. crazy. So I was like, you know, it doesn't really make sense that we're giving people with blood sugar issues, literally carbohydrate intolerance of pregnancy is a one definition of gestational diabetes, a high carb diet to treat it. Why can't we go lower carb and just maintain sufficient calorie and nutrient intake by getting more of other foods that don't spike your blood sugar? Mm -hmm. And that really formed the basis for real food for gestational diabetes. In practice, we were able to drop the percentage of clients who required insulin or medication by more than half using my approach. And the clients were happier. They were more satisfied and full longer. They were able to eat more foods that they enjoyed. Yes, it meant trading off, not eating as many refined carbohydrates and delicious Mm -hmm. processed foods and sweets, of course. But you could eat, you know, butter and meat and yummy vegetables and avocado and cheese and not have to like restrict your portion sizes on higher fat foods or, you know, protein rich foods, which previously they were often in the throw out the yolks from your eggs camp, right? So Mm -hmm. that was what led to writing Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. I needed to have all the evidence that backed up my approach in one place and really just stop getting inundated with clients and practitioners who were either being given a high-carb diet or were recommending a really high-carb diet, which is just completely ineffective. And there was no resource out there that had that laid out. So that's what led to that book. Soon after that one was released, I started getting asked, do you have a recommended nutrition book for pregnancy? And well, I mean, technically all the gestational diabetes information applies to an uncomplicated pregnancy, like blood sugar balance is important to everybody. But of course, a resource that's just constantly talking about blood sugar gets a little bit old when that's not something that's in your day to day. So I was looking for, you know, good book on prenatal nutrition that I could give out. And honestly, they all either rehashed the guidelines, the same eat half your diet from carbs and limit Mm -hmm. your fat intake and avoid this long list of foods for, you know, unsubstantiated reasons. Or they gave really outlandish recommendations with no evidence to back them up. I was not comfortable with anything that was on the market. So Real Food for Pregnancy was really born out of a need and a request from my audience for a resource that was on evidence-based prenatal nutrition. It was really looking through a critical lens for what is the basis of the evidence for our recommendations to support optimal fetal development, optimal maternal experience in pregnancy, optimize recovery postpartum. Yeah, I always couldn't understand, like you said, when we have someone who's a diabetic in pregnancy, why we need to be limiting fat and why we need to go low fat. It didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. Where do these guidelines even come from? Do they have any research to back them or is it just sort of some arbitrary guidelines that are there? The pregnancy guidelines are a microcosm of the general nutrition guidelines for the country. So For the most part, they're starting from like a macronutrient centric view. So, Mm -hmm. okay, we know, maybe no, you want to put in quotes. We know that we need to get X percentage of the diet from carbohydrates and X percentage from fat and X percentage from protein. Therefore, you lay out meal plans and recommendations based upon those levels. We know that saturated fat is bad for you. So you need to limit that. We know that cholesterol is bad for you. So we need to limit that. That's really where most of the recommendations are coming from. Whether there's, you know, strong evidence to back them up. I mean, when they were initially set, absolutely not. The problem is once guidelines are set, it takes an incredible amount of evidence to try to undo or refine them because it's like, well, since we don't know and nutrition science is so confusing and it's hard to prove anything, we don't have enough evidence to go against what the guidelines are. Even though when you look at the totality of evidence that was used to set them up, it's very poor and it's based on a lot of assumptions and a lot of theories like the diet heart hypothesis which has been widely debunked over the years, especially the last 20 years. But here we are. We're still in a scenario where the recommendations say to get 45 to 65% of your calories from carbohydrates. They still tell us to limit our saturated fat intake based on what, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's very challenging. And that's part of the reason I like to take a micronutrient-centric approach where you start from 
looking at providing sufficient vitamins and minerals, in other words, micronutrients that we know are required for optimal pregnancy outcomes, and then create a good tasting meal plan, realistic meal plan based on emphasizing those nutrient-dense foods, and then just look at where the macronutrients fall. And no matter how you slice it, the macronutrient ratios end up very different from the conventional meal plan in that you're going to have more protein, you're going to have more fat, and you're going to have less carbohydrates and better quality carbohydrates than our guidelines, which say get half of your grains whole is just fine, which means half of your grain intake can be based on refined white flour products, and that's fine. I mean, says who? That by default displaces nutrient-dense foods from your diet and sets you up for a risk of deficiency or at least inadequate intake in many different nutrients. So my audience is mostly women who are trying to conceive, and I have a lot of questions from patients about what type of diet they should be following to support their fertility. Can you tell us a little bit about the role nutrition plays infertility and preconception? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a really good question because a lot of people aren't thinking about preconception. So they're just thinking, you know, it only matters what I eat once I actually conceive and I'm already pregnant. But there are a lot of things that happen in early pregnancies, such as the closure of the neural tube, the development and implantation of the placenta that do pull significantly from maternal nutrient stores. So entering into pregnancy with optimal levels of folate, choline, vitamin B12, omega-3s, various minerals, and many other nutrients is really important to help those processes move forward smoothly. In addition, over the course of pregnancy, you're going to become depleted over time in nutrients. Your body will continue to pull nutrients for baby's development, and then you'll have recovery after birth. And if you're breastfeeding, you pull additional nutrients to continue to transfer those to baby. Just now you do it via breast milk, right? So if you can enter into pregnancy already nutrient replete, you're much better set up for all of these processes going well and not coming out at the end of it two years postpartum feeling super depleted. Yeah, definitely. I really agree. And a lot of times, like you said, people are not really thinking about that. We oftentimes think about nutrition once someone is pregnant, but it's really important to start the process, just as you said. And there is evidence that also talks about nutrition being supportive of optimal egg and sperm quality. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So eggs take at minimum about three months to fully mature before you ovulate. And then if it gets fertilized, of course, that will eventually start your pregnancy if it implants and everything goes well. The process of, you know, sperm creation is about 74 days, so a little shorter than uh, egg quality. But again, it's several months. So leading up to pregnancy, if you can optimize the quality of sperm and egg, it will optimize your chances of conception, whether it's conception naturally or if you're using any sort of assisted reproductive technology, better quality egg and sperm predicts typically better pregnancy rates and pregnancy outcomes. Yeah, and there is evidence also that talks about how our nutrition or lack of it can affect epigenetics of offspring for multiple generations. Absolutely. Yeah, we have a lot of data on epigenetics now. Of course, I'm often looking at it from the pregnancy perspective, right? What's the in uterine environment for the growing baby and how do maternal blood sugar levels, for example, impact baby's risk of diabetes or obesity later in life? How do choline levels impact baby's brain development? How does, you know, anemia or vitamin B12 deficiency or you name it, some of these things can have really long lasting consequences. Like with the choline research, we often do a lot of animal trials leading up to human trials because animals have shorter lifespans and you can also intervene. It's arguable whether it's ethical or not, but you can provide a very nutrient depleted diet without the human ethical concerns of depriving a mother of sufficient nutrients for her baby. And then look at what are the consequences in generations of offspring after the fact. So if you intervene with a choline deficient diet in rats, for example, there are negative effects on brain health leading all the way into late adulthood, like a higher likelihood of dementia and Alzheimer's type scenarios in rats, of course. But nonetheless, 
and that some of these issues can persist into the next generation and beyond. We do have human trials showing similar things, but because of the timeline of things, like choline wasn't even on our radar as a nutrient of concern until 1998. It was listed as essential. So we haven't had generations of humans to see what happens with choline stuff, but we do have randomized controlled trials now in pregnancy providing just the adequate amount, what the government calls the adequate intake, to more than twice that amount and looking at outcomes on the babies. And they've now continued this trial up to seven years of age. So starting in infancy and continuing all the way through age seven, those children whose mothers consumed the high choline intake during their pregnancies, regardless of what they eat in infancy or toddlerhood or early childhood, by the way, predicts better brain health, better cognitive function. So these are things that hopefully we'll be able to follow those children all the way until they're like 75 and see what their brain health is like. But it would really suggest that there's a, a long-term benefit there. Yeah. And choline, you talk about this a lot. Most people are worried about taking a prenatal vitamin, but is there a difference between supplementation of choline versus getting it from real foods? That is arguable. That study that I'm mentioning was uh, supplementing with a specified level of choline by tartrate. That's one of the popular forms of choline used in supplements, and it's still found that it's beneficial. Most of the choline we get in our food is in a slightly different form. So it's like a choline salt, like choline bound to tartaric acid. Choline in our diet is usually found in phosphatidylcholine within foods that are rich in lecithin, actually. And the metabolic pathways are a little bit different, but there still seems to be benefit even if it's coming from a supplemental source. I personally take a very much food first approach because in my opinion, nutrition science is still very much in its infancy. And we continue to uncover these synergistic actions between nutrients that you would typically find together in food sources. So with choline, for example, it's usually found in foods that also contain DHA. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that DHA and choline work synergistically in helping them transfer across the placenta and incorporate into fetal brain and eyes where they support brain and vision development, mm -hmm. both of them. And of course, you find DHA and choline in choline-rich foods like egg yolks and salmon and you know, beef and beef organs, it's really mostly your animal food. So is it the same to have isolated choline in the context of a DHA deficient diet, for example? We don't know. Like it seems that choline alone is beneficial, but arguably there's probably a lot of other nutrient connections that we don't even know about that could be benefiting how well we metabolize or, or utilize them. I guess, obviously, the best thing is I always say to patients, try to get as best you can from your diet. And a supplement is a supplement. It's not a substitute yes. for all you need. Obviously, our diet is the main thing. What do you try to focus on with selection of a prenatal vitamin? How do we know what to pick? Yeah, well, it's a complicated question because there's a lot of considerations. First of all, it depends on what your baseline diet is because there are some really comprehensive, excellent prenatal vitamins on the market, but that might not be necessary for somebody who has a really nutrient sufficient diet already with like no known nutrient deficiencies. They might not need something like really, I guess you could call it hardcore, like really comprehensive. I don't think it would do them harm necessarily, but in the case of somebody who's coming into pregnancy with a lot of nutrient deficiencies, Maybe they've been on a diet that's been really restrictive of certain foods. So they, maybe they're already like B12 deficient, iron deficient, low in, in omega-3 fats, um, low in a lot of minerals, folate deficient, and they might really require a bigger comprehensive prenatal vitamin. So that's something that I would just throw out there to consider. You also want to look at the sort of comprehensive nature of the vitamin. It's become popular to sort of pick and choose a small selection of nutrients and put them into, you know, oh, it's this one a day prenatal or just really tiny, tiny amounts of nutrients and fit it into one capsule or tablet right. and pretend that it's comprehensive. And there's no like labeling requirement for companies to claim that something is a prenatal vitamin. I think for consumers, you see prenatal and you're like, oh, good, it was formulated just for me. It must meet certain specifications. No, that's a marketing term. <laughs> Anybody can put that on any multivitamin and say that it's for 
pregnancy. I mean, you hope that they're meeting certain things like folate, for example, and not going way, way overboard on vitamin A, but there's no like standard. So for me, I look at the comprehensive nature. I look at the levels of nutrients. I look at the forms of nutrients. I consider if there are gaps in the person's diet, what do we really need to fill in? For example, somebody who's eating a fully vegan diet is going to have really low choline intake and they're going to have no vitamin B12 intake unless they're supplementing separately. So I would be prioritizing a formula that has more choline, that has a sufficient amount of B12. It needs to be more than the RDA, by the way, because we found out that the RDA is set threefold too low for vitamin B12. And then in vegetarians and vegans, you often need many, many more fold the RDA to correct for prevent a deficiency. So I'd be looking at like a high B12 formula for that scenario, maybe a formula that also includes iron. Whereas sometimes I usually look at iron as something that can be added supplementally as needed, but I don't recommend it across the board. Many, many do not require a separate supplement if their diet's sufficient and they're not anemic. So those are the kinds of things that I look for. And I, I will just say from consumer perspective, you're usually looking at a product that has no less than three capsules per day for right. it to be anywhere close to comprehensive. I've never seen a one a day prenatal because it's impossible to physically fit some of these right. bulky nutrients into such a small capsule, particularly your choline, which is very bulky and minerals. So just some considerations as you're looking on the market. Yeah, I agree. That's why you have to take like four or six a day in a lot of these great formulations. And yeah. A lot of times I recommend taking the DHA separate. I think the ones that are one a day, the form isn't as good. And also, of course, you want to make sure they don't use fillers or artificial colors or because many of the vitamins, they're doing things like that. That's very true. And I, I agree with you on the separate fish oil or DHA supplement. DHA is very, very delicate fatty acid, it can get damaged very easily. And we don't know if that DHA is going to be oxidized by the other ingredients that are in the prenatal. So I'm with you. I don't believe it's been shown that it's stable enough to withstand being mixed into like the same capsule or tablet as all the other nutrients. Some of those companies have like packets that'll have the like the vitamin and then like the fish oil, little soft gel separately. I don't see a problem with that. But I don't like um, mixing it into the same formula as the vitamins and minerals personally. Yeah, I agree. Now that we're talking about DHA, I want to talk to you a little bit about DHA and seafood preconception. I think oftentimes people are nervous about eating seafood, eating fish because of perhaps mercury toxicity. Can you talk to us a little bit about the importance of seafood in the preconception diet? Absolutely. So it's funny, this is a topic that I very recently uh, was looking at. So it's good timing here. Seafood is actually like a, a very nutrient rich food, and it provides a lot of nutrients that are not always as readily found in the diet in other places. So DHA is one example. Seafood is by far the highest source of DHA. In addition, um, iodine, selenium, those two are much trickier to find in other food sources versus seafood. And seafood intake is actually quite low in the U.S. The average American woman is eating only about three ounces a week and only getting like 60 something milligrams of DHA a day as a result. Because, yes, you find it in other foods, but it's so much less concentrated in DHA when you're getting the small amount of DHA that's in like grass fed beef or egg yolks. It still counts, but it's like 10 or 20 fold less concentrated than what you get in a similar weight portion of seafood. In addition, for people who don't eat much animal foods, oftentimes seafood is providing a really valuable source of complete protein, a lot of different amino acids that you wouldn't be finding in plant foods necessarily, um, providing you with iron, zinc, vitamin B12, and of course, choline, which we've talked about. So it really can fill in a lot of nutritional gaps. As far as concerns over seafood, a lot of people are concerned about it based on the mercury content. I will say for both male and female fertility, as well as pregnancy, by the way, it seems that the benefits outweigh the risks in terms of mercury relative to the nutrients that you actually get from the seafood. So for example, we've seen like better ovarian reserve parameters in women who eat more seafood and more omega-3 as a result, despite them actually having higher measurable levels of mercury. Same thing for men. 
better sperm parameters, even though they have greater mercury intake from eating fish. And by the way, for pregnancy, just for completeness sake, we see better cognitive outcomes in infants of mothers who ate sufficient amounts of seafood, 12 ounces or more per week, compared to those who eat none. And again, this is despite the higher potential mercury exposure. Some of that is because a lot of seafood is high in selenium. Selenium offsets the toxicity of mercury, really prevents much of it from getting absorbed whatsoever, but also offsets its toxic effects on the body. But then also you have to think, what's the trade-off of having no seafood? Being more likely to be iodine deficient, that's like very predictive of IQ, brain development, and many different parameters. Are you going to be DHA deficient? We know that affects the brain. So it's like we have to always weigh the benefits and risks of different things. So I typically advise eating about 12 ounces or so of seafood a week. If you can make one of those shellfish, even better, because those are particularly nutrient dense and some things like iron, zinc, copper, and vitamin B12. And just choose your smaller fish whenever possible. Sardines, salmon are going to be better, lower mercury choices and also higher in omega-3s than some of your larger seafood. Generally, the larger the fish, the more mercury is absorbed into their system and the more mercury is in, in their flesh. I think that's great advice that we don't need to be so fearful of seafood because there's a lot of options that are smaller fish. It doesn't mean you can ever eat tuna, but perhaps limiting that more so and eating more of the smaller fish. One of the problems with those who are following a vegan diet is missing out on DHA. Can you talk a little bit about issues with the vegan diet and perhaps is there something that they could substitute maybe not as good as DHA, but things that we can use in lieu of? There is a plant form of DHA that you can get. Um, so there are algae-based DHA supplements where they specifically grow the algae in a growth medium and conditions that optimize the DHA production by those algae. So that is an option, an algae-based DHA. Is it the same as what you get in seafood? Well, it doesn't have the choline with it. Oftentimes it doesn't have or is low in the other um, omega-3 fat called EPA. Turns out EPA and DHA, they always co-occur in, in animal sources of DHA, by the way. So all your seafood always has EPA and DHA together. It appears that the two of them enhance how much of those cross the placenta. So they do seem to have some sort of a synergistic action. I still think if you're vegan and that's the only source of DHA, it's absolutely better than nothing. I don't know if it's 100% comparable from all vantage points. If you're only going to be measuring like levels of DHA in the body, then I'm sure it's fine. But would it be optimal for all of the other parameters? Maybe, maybe not. And that's always a consideration is that nutrients are often found in different forms or combined with different nutrients when you're getting them from whole foods. I will mention really quickly as just this one little odd caveat is there are some vegans who will eat bivalve shellfish. They're vegan for ethical or animal rights reasons. Bivalve shellfish, so oysters, mussels, clams, they do not have a central nervous system, so they do not feel pain. They do not have a face. And so for people who make their dietary choices for that reason, sometimes they are willing to add those in. And if you look at bivalve shellfish, I actually have an article coming out on that soon. It's off the charts high in several nutrients that are often low on a vegan diet. Um, can have actually comparable levels of DHA to salmon. It has really high levels of highly absorbable iron, zinc, and copper. Great if you're prone to low iron or anemic. Also really high in B12. It's a really valuable addition if you're like hardcore, not going to change your diet, but you want to get that food sourced DHA and some of those other nutrients. It's a really, really excellent option. Yeah, because there's a lot of things that you can miss out on. I know you talk a little bit about that with a vegan diet. And there are some people we understand that that's what they're choosing and they may not be able to change their diet patterns. What are some other things that we should be concerned about for those who are following a vegan diet preconception? Some other things to keep in mind are, first of all, many other micronutrients that you might not be thinking about. So we've already touched on B12. B12 is really only available in its absorbable, usable form in animal foods, no matter who tells you that you can get it from algae or whatever, unless it's a fortified form of B12. 
you're only getting it from animal foods. So that's something you definitely would want to be supplementing with. There can be nutrients that are not provided in sufficient concentrations in plant foods. Um, Choline is a great example. I've never seen a vegan diet that has sufficient choline. Even if they're basing their diet on all of the richest plant sources of choline, the concentrations are too low for it to be feasible. Just to give you like an example, egg yolks are one of the richest sources of choline. It would take you two cups of beans. That's considered an excellent vegetarian source of choline. Two cups of beans, cooked mm. beans, to equal the choline content of a single egg yolk. Right. It's really hard to get down more than, well, first of all, anyone get what two cups of beans in a day, but more than two cups of beans in a day, that's going to be challenging. And that's right. only getting you maybe a quarter of the way to the amount of choline that your body needs every single day from like a minimal standpoint. Some other nutrients would be like glycine and and several amino acids that are only found in animal foods. Vitamin K2, unless you're eating this highly fermented soybean product called natto, you're looking at animal sourced foods for that. You can have issues with nutrients not being as well absorbed, like iron and zinc. You really only absorb very small amounts of plant sourced iron and zinc because there's often many different nutrients in there, or some people call them anti-nutrients that impair your absorption of them. And then there's differences in the forms of nutrients found in the diet. So we talked about DHA. A lot of people think you can get omega-3s from flax seeds, chia seeds, Mm -hmm. walnuts. It's in a different form. And that form called ALA is converted at a very, very low percentage into DHA, like one to three percent. You become deficient in DHA over time if you're never consuming any actual DHA. You cannot convert enough. Same with vitamin A. You cannot get preformed vitamin A in plant foods. It comes as beta carotene or carotenoid. Right. And the conversion rate is very, very low. And a lot of people have genetic defects in their ability to convert. And some people who have some of these genetic variations, they're only producing 9% of the expected amount of vitamin A from intake of beta carotene. And therefore, they're very prone to deficiency if they're not getting a preformed source. Some of these things can be made up with supplements, of course, but it starts getting really complicated really quickly. And they're all things worth considering. The other thing I I would just touch on is just from the macronutrient balance and macronutrient intake. Oftentimes, on average, vegetarians and particularly vegans are eating much lower amounts of protein in their diet. And if you really look at what's optimal to support hormonal balance, regular ovulation, hormone production as a whole, you need more protein than what most vegetarians and vegans are eating. You're also not getting the same amino acid balance as you do from animal foods. And there is data suggesting that amino acids we used to call non-essential, like don't worry about it. You don't have to get in your diet. Your body can make it from any of the other amino acids you eat. Mm -hmm. There's indication that a lot of these so-called non-essential amino acids play really important roles in things like ovulation and egg quality and implantation and optimal pregnancy outcomes. So there's just a lot to consider. And I'm just touching on a few. I didn't go into the types of fat or quality of fat. We didn't even talk about carbohydrates. But the biggies for me are insufficient micronutrient intake and the tendency for deficiencies in many of those, as well as insufficient and imbalanced amino acid and protein intake. Those are the two big ones that are really hard to reconcile. And supplements only go so far, particularly on the non-essential amino acid conversation. Right. So definitely, although, like you're saying, you can't really make everything up with supplements, but if you are a vegan, you really need to be looking out for B12, choline, DHA, and vitamin A. And those are all an iron. Yes. You need to make sure they're in your prenatal and is is a extensive prenatal that's going to help you. Now, on the flip side of the vegan diet, we have a lot of people that are going on a keto diet now. It's become extremely popular. And I do think there are ways to do a keto diet more healthfully, and there are ways to do it maybe not as healthfully. What are your thoughts on the keto diet and and those patients who are um, trying to conceive? Well, I think you have to pick and choose the right scenario and like phenotype of person or clinical case to decide whether a ketogenic diet makes sense. From a dietitian standpoint, it's a little challenging for me just because definitions of what a ketogenic diet is have been very blurred. If you go back to 10, 20 years ago, before ketogenic diets were very popular, 
for the most part, it was like reserved to very specific, usually neurological conditions like epilepsy. And it was very strict. It was like a protein deficient, extremely low carbohydrate, extremely high fat diet, like 90% of your calories coming from fat. So from that standpoint, if you're talking about that for optimal fertility, it's definitely not going to cut it. Nowadays, there's a lot more sort of maybe moderate ketogenic diets that aren't so ridiculously high in fat, maybe 70%, 75% of the diet coming from fat, low carb, but sufficient protein. And that's a different scenario. And there are clinical situations where that makes sense. For example, in the case of highly insulin resistant PCOS, There have been many, many different studies done, randomized controlled trials and controlled feeding studies where they allocate a certain number of people to eat a standard diet or whatever. And then the other group eats a ketogenic diet and you look at the outcomes. And when it's well-planned and it's the right scenario, somebody who's highly hyperinsulinemic, has a lot of weight to lose, ketogenic diet often fares really well, helps lower insulin, improve insulin sensitivity, improve blood sugar parameters, lipids, lower androgens, and seems to have like a positive clinical outcome. That said, there have also been studies that aren't so strictly low carb. They're just a little more moderately low carb, high protein that have some similar and beneficial effects. And one of the things that I see as a commonality between the two is you are often increasing protein above what the person typically eats. And you're often reducing carbohydrates, especially the refined processed carbohydrates. And those two things combined seem to be really beneficial. That said, any diet can be done, you know, higher quality or poor quality. I've seen people eat ketogenic diets that are, you know, as long as it fits your ketogenic macros, it's like everything is based off of some processed keto bar or keto shake or They're hungry and instead of eating normal food, they're going for some odd keto snack item. So you can do keto well. You can do it based on vegetables and eggs in the morning, still including nuts and seeds and not going so strict on carbs that you're like cutting out kale or worried about the carbs in an avocado, for example. You can do it in a way that's balanced, but I also don't know that that level of dietary restriction is often necessary. I often find we're able to accomplish quite a bit with just sort of a moderately low carb, better quality carbohydrate, sufficient protein diet. So I'm not anti-keto, but I'm also not like everybody needs to do a keto diet. You know, use it for a clinical scenario where it makes sense. And then, you know, some cautions for people where it doesn't make sense. You know, if you have a client that's completely amenorrhea. So not having a menstrual cycle, not ovulating, like hypothalamic amenorrhea. That scenario is often a situation where there's not enough energy intake. And so you don't want to be going on any sort of diet with the goals of weight loss. And when you do go ketogenic, your body becomes more efficient at burning energy. You burn more calories. So if you're not combining a ketogenic diet with eating more food, You can see some problems there. So I I don't think that's an appropriate intervention in that scenario. That person just needs to eat more food all around from all sources and not be restricting whatsoever. So use it carefully. So sometimes people are like, well, how many calories should I be eating? Or you like you mentioned earlier, how many macros of carbs and fat and protein should I be eating? And we're all conditioned to think that we need to have a number that we need to hit. Why is that not really the answer? Well, a lot of times it drives disordered eating behaviors, first and foremost. Second of all, our bodies are not calculators. We're not machines and our energy and nutrient needs are going to vary somewhat day to day. Mm -hmm. So especially from a caloric standpoint, I have never counted calories with a client. Very, very rare scenarios might I do a more detailed dietary analysis and assess caloric intake. And that's usually from the standpoint of, are they eating enough food? And if somebody's eating an excessive amount of food, I often don't need a caloric count to tell me that. And it's often a matter of improving diet quality and improving the satiety factor by upping protein, decreasing the processed foods in and putting in its place better quality foods over time as a matter of like substitution. 
that their appetite naturally regulates and and they eat less. So I reserve the counting to specific scenarios. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of women are under eating protein. And so sometimes I think it's helpful to do a couple days of a dietary analysis as a means of assessing, are you eating enough protein? Um, Occasionally when it's in a scenario of somebody who has known blood sugar or insulin issues, in addition to looking at protein, I might want to see where their carbohydrates are at. Is it really like over the top for their body's needs um, relative to their energy levels and weight goals and all of that or not? But I almost never look at calories. Yeah, almost never. I totally agree because I think people are so stuck on they need to eat this many. And I'm sort of of the opinion if you eat real food that's unprocessed, less packaged, all of that, it's going to more naturally fall into place rather than trying to get into a certain number or being like it's bad if you go a few calories over because you ate too much fruit or a vegetable or something like that. Absolutely. You know, I work with a lot of patients who have PCOS. I see many patients that fall into the pre-diabetic category and they're kind of just ignored. Well, you don't have diabetes yet. We don't really need to worry about it. You know, you're not diabetic and nobody really talks to them about diet. And that's regardless of their weight. I think that practitioners often tend to look at those who are thin and think, well, that patient, she's not going to have a blood sugar issue. I've picked up many diabetics who are thin and some that are quote unquote overweight, but they're not diabetic. And so why is it important for everyone really to look at their blood sugar balance? I'm often talking about (laughs) blood sugar because it affects everything. So from the very basics of your quality of life and energy and ability to concentrate and focus and be productive, blood sugar balance plays a massive role. So is your blood sugar spiking and crashing after meals or is it a slight rise and then a gentle decrease back to baseline? In the first scenario where you have a spike and a crash, you're not going to feel very good when your blood sugar is spiking usually. And then when it crashes, you're going to feel tired, lethargic, have foggy thinking, probably be really hungry. And then you get that physiological signal to eat something that'll raise your blood sugar right away because this is a big emergency for your body. So naturally, your body craves carbs. And then you just stay in the cycle day in, day out. As somebody who lived that way for many years, I can attest that it's not a great place to be. So if we're talking about fertility, that also affects your hormones as well and your chances of conceiving, even if your blood sugar is not in the diabetic or pre-diabetic range. There was actually a very interesting study, I believe it was out of Singapore, that followed 750 women who were actively trying to conceive. And they found that higher blood sugar levels were associated with a greater risk of menstrual cycle irregularities, so period problems and irregular cycles, and also lower chances of getting pregnant in any given menstrual cycle. And this was shown even in women who had blood sugar levels in the so-called higher end of the normal range. This means you don't need to be having pre-diabetic blood sugar levels to have problems. High blood sugar is really an emergency to your body and it creates a lot of inflammation. And then your body has to work really hard to put out that inflammatory fire. I'm talking kind of colloquially here, but this does affect your hormone balance, your egg quality. It affects rates of fertilization. It can affect implantation. It can affect the development of the placenta. A lot of these very subtle blood sugar issues that women have get worse over the course of pregnancy too. So even if everything goes well and you do conceive, highly predictive of pregnancy complications, even if you don't get a gestational diabetes diagnosis, to have blood sugar that's all over the map, big spikes and crashes, and to just, yeah, have a more uh, challenging, not as enjoyable pregnancy experience overall. So if at all possible, Getting your blood sugar into a happy, healthy range and not experiencing as many spikes and lows is really a good idea preconception. And that goes back to everything we've been talking about, which is sufficient protein intake, not fearing fat, better quality carbohydrates. Totally agree. Usually I say if there's one takeaway for patients, it is try to reduce your sugar. And that comes with reduction of processed carbohydrates, packaged foods, increasing your protein intake and healthy fats. And that's really always my one takeaway because oftentimes I struggle with having enough time to really, because I mean, we could have five episodes at least 
or a whole yeah. podcast, honestly, about this topic and still be talking. So when you meet with a patient, it's very difficult to give them, this is the quick and dirty. That's my quick and dirty is really, yeah. and for any patient, you don't have to be a pre-diabetic. As you said, you do not have to be someone with polycystic ovarian syndrome, although those patients will really benefit the most. And I think one of the things is that we think, well, when we get into pregnancy, we'll, we'll deal with these things. But you know, why is it so important for us to really try to work on the pre-diabetes and the blood sugar balance before we get into pregnancy? Well, first of all, there are issues that can happen as a result of high blood sugar at the start of pregnancy. We talked about neural tube defects and how that's related to intake of nutrients like folate, choline, B12, etc. High blood sugar is actually a significant risk factor for neural tube defects. So glucose above a very small controlled range in pregnancy is associated with a number of different congenital anomalies, so birth defects, which is why the rates of early pregnancy loss are so high in people who have, um, especially like overt and poorly controlled diabetes, mm -hmm. mostly. So certainly there are effects that blood sugar can have very early in pregnancy, well before you do any sort of screening for gestational diabetes or something that it's good to be aware of. The second thing is, even with best laid plans of eating a salmon salad every day for lunch, the first trimester often throws people for a loop. There's a lot of different things physiologically happening. And for many women, they're also experiencing nausea and food aversions during that time. And those usually make them less able to consume some of these healthier foods, right. especially some of their animal proteins, your vegetables. It might be a situation where think about when you have food poisoning. This is how I was trying to describe it to my husband when I was in the first trimester. And granted, I didn't really have super severe nausea. I wasn't throwing up all day long or anything, but it was just this low level kind of rolling queasiness where you're just nothing sounds good. You're not sure if it's going to feel good in your stomach or not. You're not sure that might make you throw up. Mm, that smell turned me off. You go to start cooking dinner. It sounded good 10 minutes ago and now you're cooking and you can't finish cooking the meal. Somebody else take over. And by the way, I can't eat this. It's this very weird roller coaster. And so you might find yourself in a situation where you are not eating optimally for a period of time and lean into it and do the best that you can. But if you're coming into pregnancy with these nutritional things kind of figured out and with nutrient stores, you can rest easy that it's going to be okay. And you're not going to be like worsening any pre-existing blood sugar issues if you are surviving on, on carbs for a period of time. That said, trying not to have carbohydrates all by themselves in the first trimester does often help mitigate some of that nausea, but you are likely not going to have as balanced of an in intake for a period of time. And uh, you want to accept that and not be fearful of it if, if that happens for you. One of the really common questions I get asked by patients is there's a lot of go dairy-free, go gluten-free if you're trying to conceive. I wanted to talk a little bit about those ideas. Is that something that everyone needs to do? Or is that something that only certain people need to pay attention to and your thoughts? Well, from the dairy perspective, we do have a fair amount of research suggesting that higher fat dairy products are actually associated with better fertility, improved fertility. And this could be many reasons. Dairy tends to be a really good source of vitamin A, which supports egg quality and ovulation. Iodine, Riboflavin, which helps with your folate metabolism. Nobody ever thinks about riboflavin, but that's the cofactor for the MTHFR enzyme. So that'll help you convert folate into its active form and be useful. Vitamin B12, of course, lots of different minerals, including calcium, has your vitamin D, has a lot of things in it that can be beneficial, particularly when it's full fat and you get those fat-soluble vitamins. So you can actually, A, get a source of those and B, make use of the minerals that are in the dairy products. So I don't bar none, you know, recommend people overtly omit dairy products. If they are sensitive to dairy products, you know, you have adverse symptoms from them. I might look at different types of dairy products or quality of dairy products if they're open to it. So sometimes people tolerate grass-fed or A2 dairy products better. Some people tolerate goat or sheep dairy products better. Mm -hmm. Sometimes if it's a lactose issue, they can do okay with fermented dairy products like cheese or yogurt or just the full fat items that don't have much lactose, like cream or butter, but they don't do well with just fluid milk on its own. Like those would be things that I would consider. But I do 
also want to think about some of the nutritional trade-offs when people are not getting dairy products, particularly if they're not eating very many animal foods, because a lot of the nutrients in dairy have some crossover to what you're getting from animal foods, particularly your seafood items. So like, you know, fish canned with the bones, a really great source of calcium. If you're not doing dairy products, that's really your most bioavailable calcium option. Yeah, you can get calcium in certain plant foods, but the absorption is so poor that I would be looking at something like that, right? Um, you're not doing dairy products, but you also don't eat fish. Okay, well, now we probably really need to think about seaweed to get your iodine. You know, it starts mm-hmm. getting kind of whackable for the nutritional issues that can come up. So I usually instead t- try to get creative and see if we can make it workable. Obviously, there are situations with allergies and whatnot that it's not workable. And right. there are, of course, things that you can do to, to still keep the diet balanced. As for gluten, it seems like the last 20 years, we've seen a very interesting bell curve. (laughs) Everybody taking out gluten, I was one of them, and then people slowly adding it back in. First off, grains are not the most nutrient-dense food, and therefore I do think it's possible to have a complete diet without having grains in your diet. And that, Mm. since gluten is only found in certain grains, that would automatically be a no-gluten diet. That said, they are delicious and they can be prepared in ways that are a little better tolerated. So as long as you're not in the camp where you have known inflammatory issues caused by gluten, like you have celiac disease, you cannot tolerate gluten whatsoever. Of course, it should not be part of your diet. If you have certain autoimmune issues, I think it's arguable still in the research on whether you want to take out gluten or not, but it's certainly an option. And in that case, you can, if you want to still include grains, there are many gluten-free grain options that you can have. That would be sort of a one-for-one carb source and relatively similar in micronutrients. Or you might choose to do a low-grain, no-grain diet and get your carbs from root vegetables, starchy vegetables, winter squash, fruit, vegetables, really, instead of doing it from grains. Legumes, I guess, would be another pretty major source of carbohydrates. So I don't think either of them are necessarily required. I don't think either of them are necessarily foods where if you take them out, it's going to cause a problem. Grains less so risky of causing a problem than dairy products. Mm -hmm. But you just want to be smart about what's taking the place of those foods when you take them out. Is your diet still nutritionally balanced? Maybe it's better balanced, you know, (laughs) but uh, just think about those things. You know, I don't want patients to be fearful of, oh my goodness, I have to take out dairy, but I really like dairy. I mean, some people enjoy having yogurt. And I would say if you're going to do yogurt, as we said, full fat is the way to go because a lot of women are doing fat-free yogurt, non-fat yogurt. So full fat is really what the data shows us is beneficial for fertility. And real yogurt, not the yogurt that is like, you know, the fruit yogurt with, um, I don't even know if it's yogurt, but, you know, sugared yogurts, we're talking about unsweetened yogurt. And so if you enjoy that and you can tolerate that, I think that it's beneficial. We see that in the nurse's health study that there is evidence that full fat dairy is supportive of fertility. Absolutely. I'd agree with that. There's a lot of data on Mediterranean diet. And I know the problem with quote unquote Mediterranean diet is there's many different ways to approach a Mediterranean diet. What are your thoughts on Mediterranean diet for supportive fertility? Why might we be seeing this? The one commonality in Mediterranean diet, because there's many different countries that border the Mediterranean Sea and are technically would be in the region of the Mediterranean. <laughs> and there's So there's a lot of dietary patterns that are, you know, encompassed in this very Western interpretation of what we call a Mediterranean diet. I'll say that first of all. But the one commonality is that it's low in processed food. They're often cooking from scratch. So by taking out the processed foods, you make more room, no matter how you slice it, for more nutrient-dense foods. I think that is the ultimate benefit of the Mediterranean diet. I don't know if you saw this research paper, but they looked at the average caloric intake in in an average American diet and 58% was from ultra processed food. So ultra processed foods are things that have five or more ingredients. Usually the main one is sugar. So it's things that are based on white flour, white sugar, high fructose corn syrup, refined starches like cornstarch and 
whatever, and then a bunch of additives. So all your flavorings and colorings and whatever. So all of your really low quality white bread, low quality cereal, candy, sweetened drinks, donuts, you know, that all fits into the ultra processed food category. And if that's more than half of our average diet, if you switch over to a Mediterranean diet, no matter what your interpretation is of a Mediterranean diet, it's going to be a net benefit. Like we don't really have to try that hard to make an improvement over what's average for people. Oftentimes there's also an emphasis on fresh produce as well. And there's a lot of different nutrients and antioxidants in fresh produce that seem to ultimately be beneficial to fertility for both men and women. I will say there's one caveat that a study recently came out showing that when people went onto a Mediterranean diet, they randomized people from a Western diet to a Mediterranean diet or an organic Mediterranean diet. So made mm-hmm. from organically grown foods. They actually found pesticide markers, the urinary pesticide concentrations were far higher on the Mediterranean diet that was from conventional foods than it was on the standard American diet. And of course, the organic Mediterranean diet fared the best of all. So of course, if you're doing super traditional, we didn't grow food via industrial farming standards with a bunch of chemicals. Traditionally, a Mediterranean diet wouldn't be providing a lot of pesticides. Mm-hmm. But if your diet suddenly starts including a lot of produce that's highly sprayed and highly contaminated with pesticide residues, that actually can have a net detrimental effect on fertility. I haven't heard any of the research address that yet because this pesticide study was fairly recent. But I think a lot of this comes down to quality, micronutrient density, and last consideration, maybe like where your food is grown and how is it grown? Is it affecting your toxin exposure via that route? Yeah, that's a difficult one because not everybody has access to organic fruits and vegetables, but I think a great way to try to look if you can't afford 100% organic is to look at like environmental working groups work for, you know, the Dirty Dozen or the Clean 15. That's a great way to start and try to select items off of there that are you know, lower in pesticide residue. That's really what I would recommend. There is evidence also looking at those who had enough folate, which folate doesn't only come from plants, it comes from also meat products. The women that had higher levels of folate, it actually helped those who had higher levels of chemicals like BPA. We saw that it actually was protective of the effects of BPA. So, you know, there's a lot of benefit that comes from diet for your toxin exposure too. It makes perfect sense. Our detoxification pathways and the liver detoxification enzymes are very nutrition dependent. So a lot of these different micronutrients are involved as well as many different amino acids. So it makes perfect sense. Again, anything that replaces processed foods is going to be a net benefit. Right. Whether they're organically grown or not, in my opinion, like regardless of that pesticide conversation, it's always going to be a net benefit if your nutrient intake is better. So your books are called Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. What is real food? My definition of real food is food items that have not been processed in a way that removes nutrients from them. So most people think of this just in terms of whole grains versus refined grains. Taking a whole wheat kernel and turning it into white flour. Yes, that is one example of processing where you're removing nutrients. But I look at it from all the different food categories. So it's not just the whole and refined grains. It's the dairy products that naturally come with fat versus the the ones where you take the fat out. It's the eggs that naturally have a yolk versus the carton of egg whites. It's the chicken that you eat all the parts from versus the boneless, skinless chicken breast. And then you never make bone broth with the bones. You never eat any of the skin. You never eat any of the organs. What this does is you have a different nutrient intake when you eat these foods that have been separated from some part of the whole. With eggs as an example, you take out the yolks. You're taking out most of the vitamins and minerals from the eggs. Yes, there's some in the whites, but all the choline, all the DHA, all the B12, that's all in the yolks Mm -hmm. and you're throwing it out. So that's probably the biggest consideration is just not having foods processed in a way where you take the nutrients out of it. But overall, my definition of a real food diet would encompass an omnivorous diet of both plants and animal foods and really no, no restricting of things unless it causes a 
problem to your health, like not taking dairy out just because, but if it causes a, an issue for your health, absolutely make adjustments. Mm-hmm. Grains, same thing. If you tolerate them well, especially if it's like whole grain sourdough or something that's fermented that like improves your you know, nutrient absorption, reduces the uh, blood sugar impact of that, and that works for your body, great. If you need to be fully grain-free, gluten-free for some reason, we can make it work. But at the end, it's a diet that's based on mostly unprocessed foods and not a lot of the processed stuff. So it's just more nutrient dense. Thank you so much, Lily. I don't want to keep you. I could talk to you for the whole day, honestly. But this was so informative. I know that this is going to be so helpful for listeners. How can listeners connect with you? First of all, find me on my website. So lilynicholsrdn.com. On there, I give away the first chapter of Real Food for Pregnancy for free. I have 250 plus blog articles up there. We touched on some information from a number of them today. If you search protein, you'll find an article on protein needs in pregnancy. Yeah, there's many different articles up there. I won't go into all of them. So just take a peek there and use the search bar to find specific topics. You can find my books. They're both linked out there, so you can find where to purchase those. And then as far as social media, I'm most active these days on Instagram, and you can find me at Lily Nichols RDN. So same as my website. Thank you so much, Lily. I hope to have you on in the future. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. The Fertility Journeys Podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review or tag us on Instagram at Fertility Journeys Podcast. This will help us to spread awareness and reach new listeners. Episodes drop every week, and you can learn more at fertilityjourneys.org. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Please consult with your own physician as information shared on this podcast is not a substitute for medical advice.